0: Good morning. Today we uh, take to heart what James calls the wisdom from above in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. When I was uh, 19, I turned my life over to Christ. Um, What was significant about that, because I had been kind of, I mean, Mom and dad took me to church, and I was baptized when I was eight, and that really meant quite a bit to me as an eight-year-old kid. Uh, But what really changed between eight and 19 was a complete rebellion, you know. And when I turned my life over to Christ in really made him lord of my life i was looking for every possible way that i could you know get involved and that's how i started working with high school kids originally because uh, one of the one of the leaders there said well why don't you go with us to winter camp and you can help out and i was just looking for ways to stay involved you know and kind of move out of my old culture into this uh, new culture of christ and after church i would meet with people that would meet in the park and it was a kind of a church in the park at that time uh, there was a whole kind of jesus movement uh, involved in christ and we were going through proverbs the book of proverbs and in the book of proverbs you don't have to read very far at all before you start hearing again and again in a number of different ways that wisdom is worth more than gold or silver now i don't some of you may know but a couple of weeks ago Corey was uh, was a contestant on Let's Make a Deal. And he'll, he'll tell you about that sometime. I don't want to ruin anything. But who hasn't seen Let's Make a Deal? I mean, just imagine behind one door is wisdom, and in the, the other door is silver and gold. I submit to you most of us would probably take the silver and gold door. We'd go for that. But what James is saying and what is the consensus of the Old Testament wisdom literature is that wisdom is worth more than precious gold and silver. With that in mind, let's see what James has to say because he's commending, he's peddling Door number one, the door with wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? You know, by the way, in Proverbs 16:16, 16, 16, it says, far better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding than silver. James opens with wisdom and understanding. Who among you has wisdom and understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So I hope you pick that up. You see, if you say, I have wisdom, I have understanding. Um, James is saying your wisdom and understanding is not the wisdom and understanding that comes from God if in your heart you have bitter rivalry or jealousy or envy and selfish ambition. In fact, he says, this is not the wisdom, verse 15, that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. You know and along the way each week as i prepare i consult different uh, experts Uh, one said in typical fashion and i quote james sets his trap and then springs it he asks who among you is wise and understanding perhaps some of the self-appointed teachers were thinking i'm glad that you recognize my talents then in his No-nonsense style, James springs the trap. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Well, that's certainly possible, but what I want us to appreciate and not lose sight of is that I think James really wants people to pursue wisdom, to walk together in wisdom. He needs their wisdom, because he is getting reports of quarrels and conflicts among the people that have scattered from Jerusalem that he cares about. They're among the 12 tribes that he mentions in the opening verses of his letter. He's writing to them because he is seeking to pastor them, to encourage them, to help them. And so he is instructing them so that they won't quarrel, so that they won't experience divisive conflict. And he wants the wise to step up, but he wants it to be a wisdom that is characterized by God's wisdom, a wisdom that he says twice here in these verses, a wisdom which is from above. In fact, there's a real strong theme right here in the center of his letter dealing with quarrels and conflicts. In last week's message, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, which was about the tongue and the destructive power the tongue it's not that the tongue can't be used for good but so often he says we can't control our tongues we need the Lord to be in control so that the tongues power can be used in a in a constructive way but the big underlying issue was who is ruling the use of the tongue in chapter 3 13 through 18 he's dealing now with wisdom, but whose wisdom? Where does your wisdom come from? And that becomes an underlying theme and emphasis of what he's saying here. In chapter 4, the very next verses that follow, and imagine if you're reading from left to right or if it's a scroll, you know, from down, column by column. But the point is, is that if you were reading all this, first you would be thinking about the tongue, then you would be thinking about where... Does the control of the tongue come from where does where does the control of the kind of life I lead come from is it wise or unwise and then he goes right into chapter 4 verse 1 and what's the first question well he asks where do conflicts and quarrels come from the ones that are among you and so James may be flicking a few earlobes here, but James is surely trying to encourage those who are wise to step up and exercise that wisdom. And he'll talk about the influence of that wisdom in these verses when he describes it in verse 17, the way it conducts itself. Man, we need that to get along. And he wants us to get along. He wants us to collaborate. He wants us to cooperate. He wants us to express, as believers in Jesus Christ, he wants us to express that kind of wonderful unity that comes when Jesus Christ is at the center of our lives. And that is the wisdom that's described in verse 17. So, I really see James in kind of the overall message of what he's saying or implying here is we will work together when we walk in the wisdom of God. And I'm not seeing that come up. There we go. We will work together when we walk in the wisdom of God. I'll have more to say about that as I go, but there are three things that I believe James is emphasizing, or at least three things that we can see that are relevant for us. One, we need God's wisdom. We see that in verse 13. Not only do we need God's wisdom, but we need God's wisdom in our hearts. The heart is headquarters. The heart is central command and control. If you get at the heart, if you destroy the enemy at central command and control, you wipe everybody out. I mean, even in the old battles, you know, when they rode on horses and they had people marching along with their spears and shields, if you got to the king, if you got to the general, that that turned the tide of battle. What I want us to appreciate, we can roll right over these words like heart, but when James says, in your hearts, he's talking about that which rules your life, that which controls your decision-making, what manages you. And that's very, very important for us to appreciate. So that's why I say we need God's wisdom, we need God's wisdom in our hearts, and above all, we need God's wisdom with its fruit of love and the distinguishing thing in all of this is god's wisdom the church needs wisdom not just the boast or the claim which he'll bring up in verse 14 but in verse 13 he is really calling all of us even those whom he is going to kind of chastise or say hey check that part and get on board with the program of Jesus Christ, because the wisdom that's ruling you is rooted in selfishness, and that's no wisdom from God. That's really his message in verse 13 and 14. But in verse 13, he's really asking people, you who are wise, you who have understanding, express that, because wisdom and understanding is not just a boast, it's not just a claim, it's action. And certainly James is the author of Faith in Action. He wants to see that wisdom influential. He wants it to be catalytic, to make a difference in the difficulties that some of these churches are facing. You know, in the smallest little pools of people that make up a church, we can be with, you know, comfortable with, with our friends and acquaintances. And something can be spoken that is divisive, that may not even be true, that we could call gossip. I'm not thinking of anything specific. I'm just speaking in principle. And if we then kind of all chime in, even though we may be wise, we may may know better. We can go along to get along. And James, if we applied this verse to that kind of a situation, James would be saying, hey, (laughs) step up. Don't just sit back and let that pass. In a loving kind, don't cause them to be ashamed we're all foolish we all make mistakes as james said in the last passage but he said you can correct that in a way that doesn't blow everything up you can say we can do better and we should that's the kind of thing i see james saying he's all of us have a wisdom all of us have an understanding but it becomes useful in the hands of the Lord when we turn our hearts over to Him, when He's in control. And I think He's calling upon that. Sure, He says in verse 14, the epicenter of wisdom is the heart. But before we get to the issue of the heart that he brings up, he does give us a glimpse of the wisdom from above in verse 13. Just three things I want us to appreciate. It's visible in what it does, and I've already touched on that. But that's that's what he's saying when he says, show it, demonstrate it. It's a very graphic word that has to do with prove it prove your wisdom A second thing that he says when he talks about proving it or acting it out and showing it he talks about and I'm going this is my translation praiseworthy conduct I know the translations just say good conduct but the word that is translated here good speaks of praiseworthy often the word is translated by the word beauty things lovely things that are noble and honorable so if a word can bear those kinds of sense i don't want us to miss that when we just hear the word good i want us to realize that when wisdom works it's something that i mean it's i don't want you to misunderstand me but it's almost charming to see wisdom in play because it works beautiful things, not ugly things. We know what works ugly things. We're guilty of working ugly things. Beautiful things, a little bit rarer. And I want us to appreciate that it's an element of wisdom here. It's praiseworthy conduct. It's noble, beautiful, not ugly conduct. And then a third thing we see here is it's meek or gentle. The word literally is, and generally translated, lowly, humble. In other words, wisdom isn't a bully. Wisdom just quietly asserts itself. It doesn't choke you into seeing it or to following it. It just asserts itself. in humility. Well, those are three things we need to appreciate, but more importantly, here we are introduced in verse 14 to what wisdom is not, but it does identify where wisdom, the root, the epicenter, and of course I'm referring to earthquakes. But now... I mean, we're just kind of all oriented. I expected another one yesterday. I was waiting for it. Weren't you? I see that little map in my mind, you know, where the epicenter is, where Bakersfield is, where Fresno is, and where Visalia is. We're about 70 miles as the crow flies. But I wanted to use that expression to help us appreciate that that is the heart of the issues here. And so when he talks about in our hearts, he's talking about ground zero. And the kryptonite of wisdom, the kryptonite of wisdom is selfishness. If you've never thought about it before, if you want to define sin, if you want to know why sin is a problem, if you would like to start with what's the first or fundamental element of sin, can it be sin without this element? No, it cannot. What is it? It is selfishness. Selfishness expresses itself in jealousy. It could be rendered jealousy. It actually uses a, an adjective, bitter or sharp, sharp je- jealousy, or it could be translated envy, and all the translations reflect that. Bitter or sharp jealousy, or envy and selfish ambition. And they add the word selfishness to help us appreciate that this is an ambition that's driven by selfishness. They want you to know that it's for personal gain. And if you get in my way, I'll walk all over you. Why is it kryptonite? Well, we all know Superman, right? Kryptonite is an alien mineral, an alien mineral, that when Superman gets within proximity, that mineral, it, 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 it actually drains him of his strength. And you can see in the movies, whenever he gets around kryptonite, you know, he starts to falter and struggle, and then he goes to one knee, and you, come on, Superman. <laughs> we need you. And, and that is what selfishness is to the new creation, to the new humanity, to the new person created through faith in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection, his death, the defeat of sin, and resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then the death was not powerful or efficacious. But because it was, and it was Jesus who went to the cross to demonstrate, to live out the love of God in such selfless manner, he who was so high, so beautiful, so glorious in his divinity and equality with God, he emptied himself and became a slave and obedient unto death on a cross to demonstrate God's love. That's selflessness. What's the opposite of that? Selfishness. And if Paul in his letters, and James can refer to it here, and Peter in his letters, if they can all refer in different ways to the new humanity that is born in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the power of that resurrection, a down payment on an inheritance of life, new life, life to come, not a not a leftover, warmed-up, old human existence, but a new, powerful one in Jesus Christ, the resurrected one. What's the kryptonite of that? Selfishness. You just picture Superman, in all of his power, being reduced to his knees, gripping the floor with his fingers as the power drains out of him. Our kryptonite is selfishness. Here, it's expressed in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. The evil Lex Luthor uses kryptonite against Superman. The evil... Lucifer, the fallen one called the devil, the contender, Satan. Yeah, he wants you to rise up in your selfishness. He wants you to reclaim your throne, the throne you surrendered when you made Jesus Christ Lord. He wants you on the top of it, crowing in all of your pride, Because when it manifests itself, yeah, it's jealous. What is jealousy? No, jealousy is just that that strong, powerful, powerful longing to have what I think I deserve. And when I see you getting what I deserve, that makes me jealous. I should have that. Not you. I'm more important. I deserve, those are the words of jealousy. Those are the thoughts and ambitions of jealousy. Selfish ambition, well, that's, uh, I'm not gonna let anything get in my way. I'm number one, climb to the top. And when we push that in selfish ways, it's a reflection of that selfishness. This This is so contrary to the message of the world. This is so contrary to the message of our televisions. Do you know that everything that you get for free is peddled on the basis of selling advertising dollars? What are they trying to advertise to you? Selfishness. You come first. You deserve. Don't wait. Get it now. It's merchandising. It is merchandising competition and personal triumph. Everything in our culture says it's okay to be number one, no matter what it costs to others. Listen. I am selfish, we never outgrow this selfishness. This is the battle that Paul talked about when he talked about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. God invades our life, pours his very spirit into us, and that spirit tweaks us when it comes to selfishness. Boy, I really became aware of my sinfulness when I came to Christ. Until then, I thought I was a pretty good guy. If, if, if my whole life hadn't just broken down and me just crying out for help, I would have never turned my life over to the Lord. But when I did, boy, what soothing encouragement and growth began. But as I went, I realized I was more acutely aware of my selfishness. All the I could get you to think what a wonderful guy I am. I could... Hey, we use this kind of these techniques and tactics all the time, don't we, with everybody around us, whether it's at work or school or whatever the endeavor. We're putting on our best face. But see, that as the Spirit begins to thrive in our life and Christ begins to rise and rule in our life through faith, we become more sensitive to that selfishness Our society promotes us being full of ourselves. D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. So what I'm trying to say is this is the fundamental thing that gets in the way of God and his wisdom in our lives. And that's why what James is talking about here When it comes to wisdom, it focuses in on the issue of the heart. We need God's wisdom. We need it in our hearts. And we need its fruit of love. In verse 17, James makes it very clear what wisdom from above does. And it's identified by the quality of life that it produces. He says it's pure. I want things that are pure. You do too. We don't want food that's already been opened. You know, if we buy it at the store or we don't, we want, if we get a new car, we don't want it to be keyed on the side. Um, We want whatever the product, we want it to be authentic and real. We don't want it to be flawed or mixed or, and that's, really what he's emphasizing, but as, he, as we deal with wisdom, the wisdom of God in its expression in our lives, it really has to do with innocence, being genuine and authentic. Peaceable. Peaceable means of peace or for peace. And so, I would help you um, suggest that when you read peaceable, you think of loving and peacemaking as well. When God's wisdom is in operation in your life and in mine, it's not only going to be of pure motives and authentic expression. You know, it's not going to be mixed with ulterior motives or harm or insult. It's going to be genuine and caring. It's going to be pure, but it's also going to be Peaceable in the sense that it loves peace and it makes peace. It draws toward peace. It encourages it peace. Everything it does is move forward toward peace. And in the Old Testament, we think of shalom, which is a wholeness of, of life and experience. It actually, shalom expresses the very best of God. So it's that, and it's also gentle, this word is such a beautiful word. Um, I remember running across it in the New Testament. I remember, though, it really kind of started to stick out to me when I was reading Flannery O'Connor's writings, and particularly her letters. And in one situation, in one of her letters, the, the priest talks to her about this word, epikais. And it is such a beautiful word to her that I began noticing. So now I've got this file where I collect all these examples from all of my reading having to do with this Greek word. Um, And I want you to know that in Aristotle, he uses this word to describe what he calls the good person as opposed to to the bad person. In Dio Chrysostom, who was an orator of this period, he uses it to describe what it, it's the good shepherd, the good this word good shepherd. Now, I think that's really a beautiful illustration of sorts because the good shepherd is always the shepherd that looks out for the interests of the flock and not himself or herself if there are lady shepherds. Don't want to exclude the possibility. Um, We really, just by association with shepherd, we get some beautiful insight into the notion of this word good. They translate it gentle, it has to do with the person who pursues the Spirit rather than the letter of the law. If I, if I were a judge sitting on the bench and I had evidence proving that you did what you did with intent and the law would allow me to sentence you to X number of years, well, it would be this kind of gentle judge that would look for ways to be equitable to all the circumstances and maybe show a degree of mercy or consideration. The next word used to describe wisdom is open to reason. That is, this is willing to be shown. Are you quick to hear? Are you open to the possibility that someone else other than you might be right? Are you willing to listen to the other side of the argument? That's the kind of person, that's the kind of wisdom that's described. Full of mercy and good fruit. That means the good fruit, the good actions of mercy, the expressions of mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy in Matthew 5, 7. Be merciful, he said, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. And we saw in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, that love in action he describes as mercy, full of good fruit. Another characteristic of wisdom is it's impartial. In other words, It's fair and without preferential treatment. And with also, finally, without hypocrisy. It doesn't wear a mask. It's honest and transparent. Now, if you just step back, or maybe this week, memorize these these qualities, but if you were just to step back from your own life for a moment and say, isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't you like to know people like that? Wouldn't you like people like that to be among if not the full of your friends? What if you had a boss like that? You know, I, I, if I were a senator or a congress person with those qualities, what kind of difference could I make in the political situation? What if I were on the Supreme Court? What, how would that influence my decisions. What if I was in the White House, on the White House staff? If I had these qualities, would I last? Would I influence? We don't always know, but we have to be these kinds of people if we're going to be possessed of God's power and wisdom. Will you be this kind of person? Will you be this kind of person at home? Will you be this kind of person in your partnerships? What if if you're married or dating? Are you going to be this kind of person that is of this kind of wisdom? Is this a destructive, an ugly, a breaking down and destroying kind of coyness, skillfulness, wisdom? Or is this the wisdom of above that Always brings in qualities that are good and healing and improving, bringing out the best in one another. That's what I see happening here. I don't have this because, uh, I mean, I don't have this as a senator or a congressperson or a Supreme Court justice. I just have this as a pastor. But you have it and can have it very simply when you just make Jesus Christ Lord of your life and you walk in his power. You say, Lord, I want you to be on the throne of my life. Because when I'm on the throne, I am I'm selfish. Sometimes I'm jealous. Sometimes I'm envious. Sometimes I'm very ambitious and I'll take down anyone in my way to do it. I'll talk bad about them. I'll talk trash. It doesn't matter because I'm the most important. That's what James is addressing because he is saying to them, just as he would say to us, if we walk together in that wisdom that is above, God's wisdom, we'll work together. We'll work together. And that's what we need in this world. And you know where we need it first? We need it in the church. Because if the world doesn't see the reality of the gospel in his people, we're wasting our time. And if Jesus is just your Savior when you need him or you think you need him, when you want him to swoop in and make it all right, And you're not willing to do any of the tough stuff because he wants to grow you in Christ likeness. Not tell you, not, you know, not hand you a Kool Aid or a lemonade with a little umbrella in it and say, Put your feet up, honey. I'll take care of this. That's what a lot of us want. That's what we want that Jesus who waits on us like that. But what he wants, he wants to forge some warriors for Christ-likeness, for the resurrection power of God, and what God wants to do through you, not your neighbor, through you, right where you're at. You're not in the Senate, you're not in the Middle East, you're not in the cabinet, so get off of it and get to work where God says you can make a difference. Until then, we need to quit griping and get on with it so that the church is praiseworthy and people are drawn to it because of the reality of real power, real life, and the breath of the Spirit of God at work in and through us. They should see a model of life that could never be had here in America or any other country except through the church. And that's what James is talking about. This morning, we have a chance to go to the epicenter and visit again where it all begins, the heart. And that's what he is addressing in the bread and the cup that we get to celebrate because we belong to him. But it draws us to the fundamentals of his selfless sacrifice and the new covenant that is created not only through his death but his resurrection. And that we hold in our hands, but it embodies symbolically Jesus himself all that he did for us because that is where the new life and the power reside. So let's prepare our hearts for a moment